Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 15th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we teach immunology. Joining me today is my co-host, Natalie Graham from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. How are you doing, Natalie? Hello. Good. How about you? I am good and I'm ready to start the next phase of my life, which we'll discuss at some point. (laughs) 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 Well, good for you. But what about what are we doing today? Well, we are very close to the end of this section that we are calling overview of innate immunity. We have done like three, four episodes on this, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you you ready for this final overview session? I I was born ready. Okay. (laughs) Let's review what we talked about in the last episode first. We talked about the injury being a central comp- a starting point for all these processes. During injury, there are dead cells and there are resident immune cells at the site of the injury. All of these cells release molecules that help in increasing blood flow, they're increasing vascular permeability and immune cell recruitment to the site of injury. Then many innate cells like neutrophils and monocytes can flood into the tissue and they can look at what's going on. The activity of these immune cells depends quite a lot on on their pattern recognition receptors. In the last episode, we also hinted about these two categories of inflammatory processes based on the duration of the inflammatory response. First is acute inflammation, then there was chronic inflammation. We have talked about acute inflammation being important for clearing out pathogens. In fact, there are a bunch of mechanisms that exist to keep inflammation acute rather than chronic because chronic inflammation is almost never desirable. Uh, I know this seems obvious, but can you explain to me why chronic inflammation is not desirable? Sure, that's why we are recording this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, To be optimally effective in keeping us healthy, our inflammatory responses and processes, they should use their destructive mechanisms to eliminate the pathogen while causing as little tissue damage or without affecting the normal functioning of the body systems. But the fact is, every time the immune system has a response, it does cause damage to our own tissues. So there's always a balancing act with trying to eliminate the pathogen at the same time minimizing this damage. Yeah, almost like a war. You know, in a country, there's always collateral damage and it's usually unfavorable for both the offender or the defender. Yeah, almost like a war. Uh, Just as an aside, I think we should definitely have an episode one day about times when chronic inflammation is favorable. Like... You know, if you get tuberculosis for your entire life and you get the little granulomas and stuff. One day, yeah, one day. do that, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to the microscopic war, our immune system wages, there are negative feedback regulators associated with every inflammatory process. These negative feedback loops help us get back to homeostasis, which is the normal functioning. 
However, there are a variety of conditions where this negative regulation either fails or the activation of the immune system is so high that the regulatory checks are insufficient. And we can end up with, well, you guessed it, chronic inflammation. Let's take an example of a case of heightened immune activation. Let's talk about sepsis. Sepsis is a systemic immune response to an infection and the response includes fever, elevated heartbeat and breathing rate, low blood pressure and compromised organ function due to circulatory defects. Several hundred thousand cases of sepsis occur annually in the United States and the mortality rates range from 20 to 50 percent. In fact, sepsis can also lead to circulatory and respiratory collapse that has a 90% mortality rate. Then sepsis results from septicemia, which is infection of the blood. And in particular, those infections that involve gram-negative bacteria, such as salmonella, although other pathogens can also cause sepsis. Each year, according to the CDC, at least 1.7 million adults in the U.S. develop sepsis and nearly 270,000 die as a result. If we speak mechanistically, pattern recognition receptors such as TLRs that we have talked about in this segment, they are significant contributors to sepsis. Yeah, there's a, a model of sepsis where you can inject just a ton of uh, lipopoly- lipopolysaccharide or LPS into mice and they'll die of sepsis. But if you inject that LPS into mice that don't have the TLR4 gene, these mice don't die because they can't detect it. Yeah, LPS recognition by TLR4 is is one of the big drivers of sepsis. And LPS, as we have talked about, is a highly potent activator of innate immune mediators, including pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, and antimicrobial components. Whenever there is systemic infections, there are activated blood cells, including monocytes and neutrophils, vascular endothelial cells, resident macrophages in the spleen, and other tissues, and all of these cells will release these soluble mediators. Then, in turn, they will systemically activate more blood vessels or more vascular endothelial cells, inducing them to produce cytokines, chemokines, adhesion molecules, and clotting factors that all amplify the immune response. These molecules have dangerous effects on the blood vessels, and eventually there is organ damage that can lead to mortality. So there is activation of immune cells and then activation of vascular endothelial cells in sepsis? Yes. I'm I'm glad that we talked about sepsis as one instance of chronic inflammation. You said that in this case, there is just excess inflammation that is beyond control of our regulatory mechanisms. Um, Now, could we talk about these regulatory mechanisms uh, that make sure that we do not have chronic inflammation under normal circumstances? Yes, let's do it. In fact, since we're talking about regulation, let's break this regulation down into two categories. There is positive regulation and then there is negative regulation. First, the positive regulation allows us to amplify a small trigger into a large-scale response so the threat can be investigated quickly and effectively. Let me give you an example. Two of the initial cytokines that are induced by PAMPs and DAMPs upon PRR signaling like TLR signaling 
are TNF alpha and IL-1. These are very typical cytokines that are induced as a result of PRR signaling. Both of these cytokines activate uh, intracellular signaling pathways that are similar to those of TLRs. And hence, they induce more of themselves. This is an example of a positive feedback regulation. In other words, a cell's response to TNF-alpha or IL-1 signaling can induce more production of TNF-alpha and IL-1. In a parallel fashion, in some cells, type 1 interferons can signal the cells to make more type 1 interferons. Other positive feedback mechanisms triggered by pattern recognition receptor activation include the activation of high transcription rates of the genes for the TLRs themselves and for the subunits of NF-kappa-B itself. So this is one way we start an amplification loop using the positive regulators. Yeah, now that you mention all of these positive regulatory mechanisms, it's really easy to imagine how sepsis responses are amplified. It's like blasting a siren out and then everybody panics. Yeah. You, you know? <laughs> yeah, I remember this quote from one of my professors who taught me innate immunology. He said, well, we die from sepsis because, I mean, mice die from sepsis because they're not supposed to survive sepsis. Usually, this is like, if you have a lot of bacteria in your blood, let's see your death sentence most of the time. And the immune, immune response is just over the roof in such cases. So yeah, all of these positive regulatory loops are definitely involved in sepsis. And now that we have talked about the positive loops, Let's talk about the other side of the equation, the negative regulators. We just talked about how IL-1 induces more IL-1. The funny thing is, many pattern recognition receptors that signal to produce IL-1 can also produce another product called IL-1 receptor antagonist, or abbreviated as IL-1-RA. This looks like IL-1, but does not signal, therefore it acts as a decoy. A similar thing happens with MITE88. We talked about MITE88 being an important adapter molecule for relaying signals downstream of many toll-like receptors. Guess what? A product of MITE88 signaling can be a truncated or shortened form of MITE88. What does this short form of MITE88 do? Is it just as MITE? It's just as mighty. It's no, it's not as mighty. It's a little as mighty because <laughs> it looks like mighty 88, but it cannot signal. Doesn't it sound like the cell just failed miserably at making a complete protein and then, and then thought, oh, I, I could still use this. Yeah, definitely. Like every time I have a failed experiment and I try to explain to my boss why it's not as bad as it looks. <laughs> Dude, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Look at the positive side. <laughs> we know what not doesn't work now. <laughs> All right. So apart from uh, these decoys, we can also increase transcription of inhibitors. Remember we talked about this protein called inhibitor of kappa B or I kappa B. This is a inhibitor of NF kappa B signaling. And it turns out that NF kappa B signaling increases the IKB synthesis making it harder for the cell to continue signaling through our NF-kappa-B. Then there are cytokines that are anti-inflammatory, like interleukin-10. Uh, IL-10 inhibits macrophages from producing inflammatory cytokines. 
Yes, and we got aisle 10. Uh, overall, we have this common theme that inflammatory processes are linked to their negative regulation so that we can avoid chronic inflammation. It's yin yang. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like yin yang. It, it's like a rubber band. You stretch it far and it comes back. Yeah. Unless you stretch it too far and you break it, which is sepsis, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. uh, th- this is a perfect segue, actually, for me to tell you about how certain pathogens can exploit these negative regulators. So um, it may surprise you to know, or maybe not at all, uh, that pathogens have actually evolved mechanisms to evade um, innate and inflammatory responses. So as it is advantageous for pathogens to evolve mechanisms that allow them to evade elimination by the immune system, many have acquired the ability to inhibit various innate and inflammatory signaling pathways, as well as effector mechanisms that would clear them from the body. So most bacteria, viruses, and fungi replicate at really high rates, and through mutation, they can alter their components to avoid recognition or elimination by innate immune effector uh, mechanisms. It's kind of a bummer that, like, uh, the things we're fighting against can always evolve faster than our own immune system. Yeah. (laughs) um, Other pathogens have evolved complex mechanisms that block normally effective innate uh, clearance mechanisms. So a strategy employed by, especially by viruses, is to acquire genes from their hosts that have evolved and function as inhibitors of innate and inflammatory uh, responses. So a couple of uh, examples of these evasions range from, you know, they can avoid detection by PRRs. So like Heliobacter Heliobacter and Legionella bacteria have altered uh, structures of LPS that can't be recognized by TLR4. Um, other things can block PRR signaling pathways, preventing activation of responses. Um, and like a good example of this is West Nile virus. Their NS1 protein inhibits NF-kappa B and IRF transport into the nucleus. And lastly, they can prevent killing or replication inhibition for, uh, for instance, uh, mycobacteria tuberculosis, which blocks phagosome fusion with lysosomes. And that's one of the reasons that if you have really bad tuberculosis, you just get like these little granulomas that, you know, they're infected cells and uh, macrophages and stuff that they can't kill the tuberculosis. So they just hang out in big lumps in your lungs, which is really gross and hard on your body. But anyway, it's funny that like (laughs) tuberculosis infects the cells that were supposed to be designed to kill them. Yeah, there's such an irony. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like that, like HIV or a Oh, what's that one that destroys your memory B cells and ruins your life forever? Oh, um, measles. Yeah, measles is bad. Anyway, yeah. this is indicative of an arms race, so we have to up our defenses. But the pathogens are always going to find a way to circumvent it. Yeah, you bring up a good point about the arms race. But the fact that we are still alive means we are probably ahead in the arms race as we have defended against most pathogens as a population. How do you think our immune system is managing that? Well, while innate immunity is absolutely critical to maintaining protection from disease, it's not the whole picture. As we have learned, plenty of microbes have evolved to evade innate immune responses, so our immune system needs to pair antigen-specific responses from the adaptive immune system to keep us safe. 
I think we spend a lot of time in immunology talking about innate and adaptive as two separate systems, but really they're intrinsically connected, synergizing and cross-talking all the time to eliminate bad guys. In this section, uh, let's discuss how the innate and adaptive arms of the immune system work together. Yeah, let's do it. Also, since you were mentioning about that, now we have this concept of trained immunity and that changes how like the innate is named innate because we think that it does not change at all. It just stays constant. But now if you consider trained immunity, which as a uh, advertisement for our own episodes, you can <laughs> check out our buddy soap <laughs> with Dr. Jorge Dominguez. So yeah, trained immunity, that's a memory-like feature that can exist in innate. So are we still going to continue naming these systems as is just for the sake of tradition? Or are we going to have a whole nomenclature overhaul at some point? I don't know whose job that is. Like, if it's our job, let's change it right now. Let's change it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so let me tell you a little bit about how the innate activates the adaptive immune system. So... When the innate immune system detects a pathogen, it's not only going to directly wage war against that invader, but it's also going to help bring intelligence about these pathogens to B and T cells to help generate antibody responses. So to do this, the pathogens must be delivered to secondary lymphoid tissues, and that's stuff like your spleen or your lymph nodes, and these are the places where B and T cells hang out. So dendritic cells, or I'll just call them DCs, are the bridge between innate and adaptive immunity because these are the cells that bring the pathogen of interest to the attention of the adaptive immune response. DCs, they wait in tissues like prison snitches, surveying anything that comes uh, their way. When dendritic cells bind a microbe through a pattern recognition receptor, they carry it to lymphoid tissues. Oftentimes, the DC will engulf and degrade the microbe to present little bits of it on its MHC class 2. DCs can also take pathogens that replicate in the cytoplasm, like viruses, and process them on MHC class 1. And they also do this crazy thing that's a cross-presentation, and we can talk about that another day. But (laughs) when the DC's uh, PPRs are bound by a microbe, the DC becomes activated to become the best antigen-presenting cell it can be. Moreover, it also starts expressing co-stimulatory molecules on its surface, like CD86 and CD80, so that it can activate other cells, like T-helper cells. If I had a shot every time you said PPRs instead of PRRs, I wouldn't be able to record on this spot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Going back. So, yeah, we're not talking about those big guns, the T-cells and whatnot. Can you tell me something specific about how T-cells are activated by the innate immune system? Yeah, sure. So the activation of the DC is critical for the type of adaptive immune response that's mounted against the pathogen. The DC will activate in different ways depending on, you know, where that DC hails from, what kind of pathogen it encountered, and what sort of uh, PRRs were activated. Depending on those conditions, the DC will secrete different cytokines to promote helper T-cell differentiation. And this is really important because the type of helper T-cell changes the type of response. Now, uh, well, here I must warn you that the classification of T-cell response, or in technical terms, T-cell polarization, is a hotly debated topic. Um, some say that there's no like discrete categories and it's all a spectrum, but for this episode, just because everybody's learning, we're going to simplify it and talk about the discrete categories. I'm glad you put that disclaimer, so now it's your future-proof. <laughs> yeah, and in the future, when someone comes up for a good argument to get rid of the discrete T-cell polarization mo- uh, model, we don't have to delete this episode. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're so smart. Always, always two steps ahead. So always. <laughs> coming back to how DCs activate and polarize T cells, um, let's kind of focus on what type of pathogen is triggering the DC. So if the dendritic cell encounters extracellular bacteria or endosomal nucleic acids from a bacteria or a virus, the DC will secrete IL-12, which will cause a naive T cell to differentiate into a Th1 T helper cell. In turn, these Th1 cells secrete interferon gamma to activate macrophages and NK cells to help clear out bacteria and infected cells. Um, in a different scenario, if the dendritic cell happened to bind a tapeworm or some other similar parasite, it would start producing IL-10 instead, which causes T cells to differentiate into Th2 cells. Uh, Th2 cells are critical for secreting cytokines like IL-5 to recruit eosinophils uh, to try and irritate that worm to kingdom come. Uh, the last example I want to share with you is that uh, if a DC is activated in the presence of vitamin A, the DC will convert vitamin A to retinoic acid, start producing IL-10 and TGF-beta, which helps to form regulatory T cells. Uh, these are called Tregs. So Tregs, as you know, are crucial for downregulating inflammation. And this is actually a mechanism for how our immune system learns not to attack food and beneficial bacteria that are hanging out in our gut. Though these are just a few simplified examples, I hope we have helped you understand that dendritic cells play an important role not only as antigen-presenting cells, but also by providing cytokines that shape T helper cell responses. That was a perfect introduction into T cells, and I think it's a good foundation for our future episodes where we'll have a more detailed discussion on T cell activation. Can you tell me a bit about the other big gun of the immune system, the B cells? How are they affected by the innate that's another perfect segue. I'm just imagining like a cowboy with two holsters on the side of his hip with T cells, B cells. Pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about DCs and how they communicate with T cells. Um, but did you know that B cells can be activated through the innate immune system without DCs and without T cell help? So B cells also express TLRs. So if a TLR is stimulated at a low concentration in conjunction with some stimulation of their B cell receptor by that, that B cell receptor's cognate ligand, and this could maybe even be from the same microbe, that B cell can then be activated to proliferate and become an antibody secreting plasma cell without any T cell help. Moreover, if B cells encounter a really high concentration of something like LPS, the TLR4 activation is significant enough to activate the B cell regardless of its antigen binding affinity through its BCR, which is why LPS is often called a T cell independent antigen. This is actually a really useful ability of B cells because if that B cell can bind a microbe via a TLR and its BCR, that means that maybe it can be activated faster than if it has to wait for T cell help. And I can think of another way the innate system helps the B cells. The DCs activate the T cells and those T cells, the right kind of T cells, will help B cells in case of a T-dependent antigens. Yeah, so that's another way that the innate ties to B cells for sure. Um, I will tell you another direct way the innate system helps the B cells. Uh, dendritic cells can secrete growth factors and cytokines that help the B cells to do their job. Now, that's the kind of info I was looking for. Natalie, can you tell me from a practical standpoint, 
how does the understanding of this interplay between the innate and adaptive can be used to better our lives? So uh, one way that scientists take advantage of the interplay between the adaptive and innate immune responses is by using something called adjuvants to up the efficacy of vaccines. So conceptually, vaccines rely on the adaptive immune system to create memory against a known antigen. But from a practical standpoint, the innate immune system can be used to boost these adaptive immune responses. Adjuvants are basically materials that can be co-administered with the known antigen to activate uh, PRRs and create stronger immune responses. For instance, uh, complete Frunz adjuvant, which is killed mycobacteria and mineral oil, which just feels so gross going in your body. It's like peanut mm -hmm. butter being shot into your arm. <laughs> the mineral oil creates slow releasing bubbles of antigen and the dead bacteria help to activate those pattern recognition receptors. Uh, there's also alum, which is a mixture of aluminum hydroxide and aluminum phosphate, which is also used in some vaccines. Um, and that works because it activates the inflammasome to enrage your immune system to action. Uh, some immunizations already use dead or weakened viruses or bacteria, which will have their own PAMPs to activate PRRs. The COVID-19 vaccines or, or the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines uh, you know, are nucleic acid entities, which serves as their own adjuvant as well. So therefore, a major area of vaccine research is creating antigens genetically engineered to include TLRA ligands. Therefore, using PRRs is a great way to take advantage of the existing features of the immune system to increase the efficacy of vaccines. It looks like vaccine research has benefited a lot from our understanding of these two systems. On another note, do you know if there's any way the adaptive can help the innate? Because so far we have talked about the innate helping the adaptive. Yeah, there totally is. Um, we've learned about opsonins in previous episodes and how certain proteins uh, help to target microbes for phagocytosis. So some antibody classes also act as opsonins and ramp up the innate immune system that way. So you have these B cells making antibodies, and those antibodies then go help our innate immune system to do their job better. We've got a loop here. Uh, but again, this further strengthens our model of how the immune system works. Nothing exists in a vacuum. It's all interconnected. Ooh. As the last thing we talk about, let's discuss the ubiquity of the immune system. What, what does that mean? I mean, we look at different taxonomic groups of animals and plants and see how far back we can locate some components of the immune system. All right, let's do it. First, let's think about how universal the innate immunity is compared to adaptive immunity. If we review our previous 101 episodes, we have talked about T and B cells as the major components of adaptive immunity. D cells have unique antigen receptors and can identify billions of different antigens. Now, if you're thinking that these lymphocytes must be indispensable for defense against pathogens and by extension, the survival of organisms, well, I've got some news for you. If we analyze the existence of adaptive and innate immune components in different taxonomic groups, what we would find is that the adaptive immune components have only come around since the emergence of complex organisms like the vertebrates. Higher plants and invertebrates like sponges, worms, crustaceans, 
they do not have any adaptive immune components but you know what all they have the innate uh, immune components i think that shows how long the innate has been around and that it wouldn't be far fetched to call it truly indispensable for protection from pathogens in fact there are conserved components of innate immunity do you mean that the receptors that recognize conserved molecular patterns are themselves conserved between kingdoms yes uh, well since the pathogen products are conserved the receptors that recognize them are also somewhat conserved let's take this example of um some non receptor parts there are antimicrobial peptides like defensins these are almost universal plants have it animals have it even some fungi have it then most multicellular organisms have these pattern recognition receptors that we were talking about and these prrs contain this domain called leucine rich repeats or lrrs okay without going on a tangent can you please tell me what are uh, leucine rich repeats as the name suggests uh, these are parts of the proteins that are rich in leucine amino acid the reason it is important is that domains such as the leucine rich repeats can help in interaction with other proteins when we talked about cell signaling pathways in the, our previous episodes we mentioned that proteins interact with each other when relaying signals these leucine rich repeats assist in carrying out similar functions interacting with other proteins and probably relaying a signal to the nucleus think of the leucine rich repeat as trying to have your hand open out like you're trying to hold somebody else's hand so it's easier for another protein to hold your hand think of it this way oh. so yeah a protein's function is very much dependent on what kind of domains it has in fact if we can classify domains and study their functions we'll be able to predict the functions of novel proteins that we discover by just studying their sequence and figure out figuring out what domains it contains so if i discover protein x tomorrow and through some sequence analysis i find it has a leucine rich repeat domain i could hypothesize that it's a pattern recognition receptor i guess you could make that hypothesis and then of course you got to test it out in the lab i think that clarifies leucine rich repeats and the point of domains though you did go on a little bit of a tangent to explain that uh, tangents are what i live for <laughs> Well, coming back, we we don't uh, talk a lot about plant immunity on this po- podcast, probably because none of us works on plants, <laughs> and we should we should find a host who works on plants <laughs> because we were missing out on such a, a vast area of immunology, right? But yeah, this would be a good spot to talk about plants. Okay, while the plants have tough outer walls, they can still be infected by pathogens. know that plants don't have motile cells like phagocytes so they don't have a surveillance system like we do to compensate for that the plants have to take care of the infection locally that means antimicrobial peptides and pattern recognition receptors are their best friends wow that's that's so interesting uh, i think this would be a good point for us to stop adding new things cuz i'm very confused by plants and we've covered a lot in this yeah. episode. <laughs> I know it's the plants but I I can understand. <laughs> All right, let's summarize this. Um today we learned that there are two types of inflammation 
uh, inflammatory processes based on the duration of the response. First is acute and then chronic. Our immune system utilizes positive regulatory mechanisms to amplify initial immune responses. And then we also have negative regulatory mechanisms to shut down immune response so it stays acute and not chronic. Then we learned about the interactions between the innate and the adaptive and how our understanding of the two systems has helped us make better vaccines. Lastly, we talked about the ubiquity of the innate immune system across kingdoms and phyla, while the adaptive immune system has only been around since the emergence of vertebrates. Natalie, do we have anything else? No, I, I think I think we did it. I've learned so much. I think, yeah, this would be a good point to wrap up the discussion. Uh, thanks, Natalie, for the wonderful discussion. And for our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.